You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. So Paul is writing Timothy in 1 Timothy. And Timothy lived in Ephesus. As you walk through the book of 1 Timothy, you kind of see that people in Ephesus perhaps had an extreme elevation of self. A lot of thoughts about self-reliance and self-sufficiency and self-determination and self-dependency, self-made, self-promoting. And Paul is coming to Timothy and telling Timothy, tell the people of God, tell the Christians it's not about us. It's about the glory of God. It, you know, it's hard, for us to, it's hard for us to get over ourselves. We, we think of ourselves so highly and, and so often. Uh, we wonder to ourselves or we ask perhaps ourselves, you know, who are we with? How do we look? How do we fit in? You know, how much are, are we earning? You know, how many things do, do I own? How many things, how many friends do, do we have? You know, how, are, how are we doing in life? We, we tend to, to think of ourselves so highly and, and so often. And probably nothing has exposed in our lives today this obsession with self more than the selfie, right? This incredible phenomenon. Um, yesterday, every, every day, social media says that about 90 million selfies are made and then uploaded. That's 90 million a day. And if you're the parent of a teenager, that might seem a little low, but 90 million a day, it seems like, around, around the world. And so last year, Google, Google alone uploaded 26 billion selfies to their site, Again, it is a modern day phenomenon. Who knew 12 years ago that as a national pastime, we would just be taking pictures of ourselves? And when you say it out loud, you go, man, I need to delete all that album in my phone that just says selfies there at the bottom because it's, it's a phenomenon that kind of really says, exposes to us like how much we think of ourselves. Now, again, who thought 12 years ago that's what we would be doing? Of course, also 12 years ago, who thought that a reality star would be the president and Tom Brady would still be playing football and Willie Nelson would still be on tour. Like we didn't think of any of those things 12, 12 years ago. But I guess, you know, this morning, you know, just to kind of maybe give a little more example of this, I, you know, it's been a while since I've taken a selfie. So I think I meant just take a selfie myself up here. I, I never bring my, my phone. If I'm going to capture all of you here in the, in the middle, if you don't mind. So uh, just as soon as I figure out how my phone works, here it is. So uh, flip this around. So everybody just kind of lift your hand up and I'll do a little selfie here by wave. There you go. Take that picture. Awesome. You know, a little selfie. Let me send that to our production team up there. All right. Shall I get that, Tom? Um, let's see with that selfie, how that turned out. Awesome. That man. <laughs> exact image. Un- unbelievable. I love a good filter. That's awesome. <laughs> so to transition quickly and maybe in light of this to the two words we're pitting against each other today, we're, we're choosing humility over arrogance. That's kind of the, the choice that we're going to have today between these two words. We want to choose humility over arrogance because we all have not only the tendency, but also the capability to, to, to esteem ourselves so much that we begin to think that life, even as a Christ follower, is about us. And so maybe you're here today and you're thinking, I, I don't know. I don't know if I struggle with arrogance or not. Let me just kind of give all of us as we take a little inventory of our lives this morning, some arrogance markers. 
maybe for us to look at in our own lives to see, you know, do, do I struggle with, with pride? Do I struggle with, with arrogance? Because ironically, arrogance keeps us from seeing our arrogance. So here's a couple of things maybe we can kind of think about. If, if you're arrogant, number one, you, you tend to take everything personally. Like it's, it's all about, about you. You take everything personally. Right now, some of you are thinking, I don't do that. I do not take things personally. Stop, stop saying that. Quit saying that out loud to everybody. Everybody can hear you. Just, just chill. I'm easy. We all tend to often take things very personally if we struggle with arrogance, if we struggle with pride. We're quick to defend ourselves. We're quick to say, that's, that's not me. That's not my fault. In fact, if someone asks you a very innocent question, it sounds to you like an indictment. If you're dealing with pride or you're dealing with, with arrogance, I just kind of went back through the New Testament this, this week, looked at the Gospels. I noticed how really impossible it was to offend Jesus. He never really felt like he had to justify what he said or, or to correct anybody what he was accused of. He was okay with who he was and, and he knew the purpose for which he was sent. But if we deal with arrogance, that may be a mark. We tend to take everything personally. Here's the second thing your feelings and your thoughts are the most reasonable. Right? What you feel about a certain situation, that has to be the most reasonable thing. Uh, how you feel about a situation, uh, how you feel about something that's happening in our world today or in our city today, you know, in, in your humble but accurate opinion, your feelings, your thoughts are the most reasonable thoughts. That's a, a marker of, of arrogance. A couple of years ago, one of the, the dating websites sent a survey uh, and separated a survey to the ladies and a survey to the men on this dating website. And they asked the men, I don't know why they asked this question, do you consider yourself a genius? <laughs> Two out of five men said, well, if you're to put me in a corner, I mean, technically, yes, I guess I'm a, I'm a genius. <laughs> the real stats bear out, it's about one in a thousand people. And so the, the little headline on the, results of the survey was two out of three men think they are one in a thousand. I was like, yeah, that's, as a member of that gender tribe, that's about right. That's probably where the, where the stats are. Two out of three men think that they are one out of a thousand. So if you kind of, if you think highly of yourself, you think that, that your opinion is the greatest, your opinion is the widest, your, your, your thoughts the most reasonable, that might be a marker of arrogance. Here's the third thing, that your desires are the most important. That's a marker of, of arrogance, that your preference, your style, your your opinions, what you want is most important. And let me just say that, that type of arrogance will fold a marriage. And that type of arrogance will fold a family, will fold a friendship, it will fold a church, it will fold a, a workplace where you believe that your desires are always the most important. Here, here's the fourth marker of, of arrogance. You always think the other person needs to apologize or you always think the other person needs to change. You know, it's, not, it's not your fault. If that person did things differently, it'd be so much better for me. If that person would do things differently, it'd be so much better for, for everybody. So kind of a, a marker of arrogance is you always think the other person needs to apologize. The other person needs, needs to change. In fact, if you listen sometimes to your apologies, when I listen to my apologies, often I, I actually see the arrogance in it because here's how a lot of our apologies go. I am so sorry. But if you had not said that, if you had not done that, I wouldn't be in a place where I overreacted and now I'm having to, to apologize. And so you always think the other person needs to apologize or needs to change. And here's, here's the fifth one. This might be my favorite. You're looking around the room right now to see if that person is here who really needs to see this list. <laughs> Man, I'm glad my roommate's here today. He really needs to see that list. I'm glad she's here today. She, she really needs to see that list. You know, when you, when you see faults in others, 
but you never see faults in yourselves. When you see weaknesses in others, but you never see a weakness in yourself, that is a big indication of arrogance, of, of pride. So at the end of 1 Timothy, Paul is gonna challenge Timothy and Timothy is gonna turn around and challenge the church, gonna challenge us today to, to live these lives that we take our focus off of ourselves and we put that focus instead on the glory of God and on the good of others. And so would you with me this morning turn in your copy of God's word. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter six together this morning. Now, if you're relatively new to church, um, every book in the Bible that starts with T, they're grouped together. The two Thessalonians, the two Timothys, and Titus. And it's about 75% at the end of your Bible. It's 75% at the end of the New Testament. So if you find any book that starts with T, you're really close to 1 Timothy. So let's go to 1 Timothy chapter six together. And we're just gonna read a couple of verses this morning, starting in verse, verse 17. 1 Timothy chapter six, verse 17. I hope your Bible is open or you're sharing with somebody or your phone is, is open to that app and maybe not distracted by other things on your phone. Verse 17, Paul writes to Timothy, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So Paul's gonna talk about riches here and gonna talk to Timothy about riches, to talk to us about riches. And maybe kind of an an opening um, salvo for all of us, an opening understanding for all of us is that it's not always true that rich people love money. It's also true that people who are poor are against money. And so Paul's gonna talk a little bit about wealth this morning, a little bit about riches, and maybe it's a good thing for all of us to know. It's not a sin to be rich. It is a sin to misuse, though, what you have. Uh, in this passage, it says here, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, as for the rich, and a lot of you in here are like, man, this is awesome. This sermon's not gonna be for me whatsoever. Like, Preacher guy, I'm a college student and I have a dollar seventy-five in my account right now. And I got paid yesterday. Like I, I don't have anything, you know, at, at, at all. And so a lot of people read this as for the rich, and they think, man, I am clear of, of this sermon today. But have you noticed when we compare wealth and money, we always compare up? What if this morning we were to compare across and to consider what we have across really the nations, across the world? Do you know in in our congregation that we know of, we have 26 nationalities represented in the membership of this church. And so this morning, what if we didn't compare our wealth and what we have up, but we compared our wealth and what we have across, across the world? You can ask Jerry Swamsidi, who led us in worship this morning. He's from Nigeria. Or you can ask Ebenezer Aduguamfi, who's one of our Bible leaders from Ghana here at Highland. Or you can ask uh, Dale Jang from China. Or you can ask Rosie Ramos from Mexico. Ask them what poverty and hunger and needs look like in their four nations. That's what it would look like for us this morning to compare not up, but to compare across. And maybe you've seen this before. This came out a few years ago. If you were to reduce, if you will, the 7.7 billion population of our, of our world and re- represented by 100 people. So if the world's 7.7 billion was represented by 100 people, that's 7.7 billion people reduced down in, in ratio, in proportion, in exact ratios, exact percentages to 100 people. Just want you to consider this. Only 70 of them, excuse me, 70 of them would not know of Jesus. So if 7.7 billion in the world was reduced down proportionately to 100 people, 70 
of those 100 would not know Jesus. How about this? 85 of them would live in substandard housing. That's sobering. Substandard housing is defined by inconsistent electricity and no running water. 85 of the 100 in our world, 85% of our world would say they do not have standard housing. They live in substandard housing. Here's the third one. 80 would be hungry. 7.7 7.7 billion in the world, reduced down proportionally to 100 people. 70 of them would be hungry. I'm not saying they're starving, but I am saying they are not getting their daily nutritional needs that their physical bodies need. How about this? Six would be Americans with 55% of the wealth of the world owned by those six, held by those six. This is what it looks like to to look across and not just to compare up. So I think I can say objectively this morning, you may not feel like this at all this morning, but I think I can say objectively this morning that all of us in this house, or probably 98% of us in this house, we're, we're, we're rich in this present age, not comparing up, but comparing across. How about, how about this? You know, we, we hear a lot, and I promise you, you'll hear a whole lot more this next, uh, what, 14 months about the 1%. In, in America, the, the billionaires, those who have so much. And again, what, what, what's that, what that's doing is it's comparing up. It's taking what we have where we are in wealth and, and, and what we have in, in money and we're comparing up. But when you compare across, you have to think about this. If you make $34,000 as a household, so if everyone who lives under your roof combined together makes an annual income of $34,000, everyone in your apartment, everyone in your house, they, they make a combined $34,000 at least. And guess what? You're in the top 1% in the world in wealth. So if you thought you're off the hook, I think we're all on the hook. The vast majority in this house would be on the hook for as the rich in this present age. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them, Timothy. I want you to pass this along to them, not to be haughty. Um, That word haughty means to be high-minded. If you have the NIV, it gives a very familiar word. It gives the word arrogant there. Don't be high-minded. Don't be haughty. Don't be arrogant. Now, Paul earlier had told the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter two, instead, I want believers to be lowly in their mind. In other words, esteeming other people above themselves. And here he is saying, don't be high-minded. Don't be haughty. Don't be arrogant. You see the Ephesian culture, it looked down on humility and it celebrated pride, which may sound familiar to a culture in which we live today. Look down on those who would esteem others better than themselves or greater than themselves. And Paul is saying here, I think, you know, people are not, are, are not worth more just because they have more. I don't want you to be arrogant. I don't want you to be high-minded. I don't want you to be haughty because you have these, these, these riches. He says, don't be arrogant. Don't be haughty. In fact, tell them not to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but instead set their hope on God. Now, if there's anything we know about money and wealth in this room, it's that it's fleeting. I mean, the dollar bill hits your hand and it's gone the next day. There is so much uncertainty to treasure, so much uncertainty to wealth and, and to money and and here Paul is saying, if you have that wealth, if you have things, don't, don't put your hope in that because here's our tendency. If we have a lot, we tend to trust a lot in the a lot. If, if we have much, we tend to have much trust in what we muchly have. And so Paul is saying, don't, don't set your hope on some things that they're gonna shake. Don't set your hope on things that are gonna, gonna give way. You, I, I think the tendency we have in our country today, Christians have in our country today, to be cold toward Jesus is because I think in our nation, we don't really need God anymore. 
I mean, we have a retirement plan. Why, God, why would we, why would we need you? And so the love of many in our country has grown cold and we begin to set our hope on, on material things. We've set our hope on money. We've set our hope on, on, on wealth. And so here Paul says, I don't want you to be haughty or arrogant about the things that you do have. And I don't want you to set your hope on the uncertainty of riches because money, it flees so quickly. But instead, I want you to set it on God. And here's how Paul describes God. God who provides everything or who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I wrote in my notes this week to pass along to you. This, this was well, not really a simple statement. It's a little convicting in my heart. But our tendency is to overestimate what we bring to the table and underestimate all that God has graciously given. I think that's our tendency ever since Genesis chapter three, since we're all born with the spiritual DNA of of Adam. We have this, this tendency in our lives and maybe even more so here in the West to kind of overestimate what we bring to the table, overestimate what what we have done to earn all these things because we live in a culture that says work hard and and, and work loyally to to your company and and you'll be paid for it. And so we tend to, to overestimate what we bring to the table, what we have done, and we tend to underestimate all that God has graciously given us. And so if you want to kick in the pants this morning toward humility, just consider everything that you have and realize that everything that you have, all things that you have, all wealth, all things, all money, it comes from the gracious hand of God. And we tend to think it comes from us and underestimate how gracious God has given, has been toward us. You know, we're, we're the stewards. We're not the managers. And, and real humility, if you want to practice humility in your life or choose humility over arrogance, Humility always points things back to God. Humility always points things back to the gracious hand of God. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 18, Paul is going to tell Timothy to tell us how to do that. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and be ready to share. So let me, let me just show you from this passage very quickly, if you want to write these things down or remember these things with me, then how do you fight against arrogance? How do you fight against pride? Now, what I'm about to tell you is not just something I've made up this week. This is straight from scripture. This is how we push back against pride. This is how we push back against our tendency, our propensity to to be people of arrogance, to be people of of pride. So how do you fight against arrogance? Let me just tell you what I'm about to tell you is, is simple to understand, but it's unbelievably difficult to live out. First thing we're to do, according to verse 18, do good. That's what Paul told Timothy to tell us. Do good. Do good with what you do have. Do good with your possessions. Do good with your wealth. Do good with your your money. And again, I would say that the vast majority of us in here, we, we need to start comparing across and not just comparing up and realize how much God has given us by his grace. And so Paul is saying here, do good with with what you have, truly good, not superficial good, not shallow good, not petty good, but, but truly good. With what you have, do noble things. With what you have, do excellent things. With what you have, do things of value. So if you wanna fight back against arrogance or push back against the pride in your own life, the very first thing the scripture tells us to do is to do good. And here's the second thing, be rich in good works. Straight from the Bible. Be rich in good works. The operative word there is the word works. So in other words, get things done. Not just good intentions, but good works. And Paul is kind of 
doing a little play on, the, play on words here when he says be rich in or your Bible might say be wealthy in. He's saying we've talked about wealth and riches and what you have. I'm telling you, if you're gonna strive for wealth, you're gonna strive for rich, strive in this way, strive to be wealthy and doing good works for the good of others. Let that be your aim to bless others. So do good and be rich in good works, getting things done, not just good intentions. Here's the third thing Paul says, be generous. In other words, be be abounding, um, be bountiful, be ready to meet any need that you would hear of any time of any person. So how do you fight back against arrogance? Well, you do good, you're, you be rich in good works, you, you be generous. In fact, I would say just be generous toward others in the same way that God has been generous towards you. And here's, here's the fourth thing, it says be ready to share. So do good, be rich in good works, be generous, be, be ready to share. And, and we might see that little phrase, be ready to share and say, Paul, you, but you've already said that pretty much like the last two verses, that we should be ready to share. Well, if you go, if you drill down just one level in that word ready to share, it's actually just one word. One word in Greek, it's the word uh, koinonikos. And you might recognize maybe that word because it comes from a word we actually use around here at Highland called koinonia which means community or, or fellowship. And so if you drill down just one layer there in the original language, what Paul is saying here is be the family, be the church, be the community, be ready to share within the church family. And this type of, of, of proximate generosity takes away the remoteness of giving. In other words, Paul's not saying here, write a check, put in an envelope, and send it to somebody somewhere else. Paul is saying here, if you wanna fight against arrogance, you wanna fight against pride, what I'm asking you to do or reminding you is that giving should first of all be near to the church fam, to, to the fellowship of the believers, to the community. Get in a church and share with others in the church. And this is what Paul says, this is how you then fight back against that arrogance. You fight back against that high-mindedness. You, you push back against that arrogance, again, that we all in this house tend to, to, to move. We're all prone to wonder, and we tend to wonder toward arrogance and pride and, and, and self-sufficiency. So would you mind me just asking this question, that, that who do we look to for that? Who is our standard in this life that is constantly pushing back against pride, constantly pushing back against arrogance? Well, the, the answer, of course, is Jesus. Look on the screen behind me. In those four things, Christ who is good humbled, humbled himself to come and, and do good. And no one in this place could dismiss this truth that Christ came and he was rich in good works. And oh, so, so generous with his love, with his grace, with his very life. How generous will he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he distributed toward us. He was generous toward us in his grace, his blood, his life, his mercy. The fourth thing that was interesting, we look at Christ in the thought of community or the thought of koinonia, or the thought of, of the fellowship. It would be enough for me and probably for most of us in this place. If Christ simply went to a cross and took my sin upon himself so that I could be forgiven by God. That would cause me to shout 
my songs of worship for all of eternity. But Jesus did not stop there. Let me show you how willing he was to share. Not only did he forgive us by his blood, forgive us by his grace on the cross and his obedience to the Father on the cross. Then he said, not only are you forgiven, but let me share this with you. Come into my family. Come share my Father. Come share my name. Come share this community. This is why we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. So what you see behind me should not just be four more regulations for Christ followers this week. On that list you see behind me, we should see Jesus, who is good, who is rich in good works, who is generous, and is willing to share not only his life with us, but God's family with us as well. Would you stand with me, please, and let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word to us today. Our tendency is to overestimate what we bring to the table. We think so highly of ourselves. God, we have underestimated all that you have graciously given to us. So Father, would you give us the grace to fight against arrogance, to fight against pride, to do good. Lord, that we in this room might be wealthy in good works this week. God, that we'd be generous, we'd be so ready to share, so ready to to be church, so ready to be family, so ready to be community. And Jesus, we're gonna fix our eyes on you because you are the standard bearer of humility, of making the choice of humility over equality with God, over the worship of angels. You slipped on skin and humbled yourself become the likeness of man, a servant, and then poured yourself out on a cross so we joyfully follow in the footsteps of that humble Savior. Give us the grace to choose humility over arrogance. In Christ we pray, amen.